Blog Talk Radio. J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. As those of you who listen with regularity know that we are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it's also archived at Blog Talk Radio, as well as at www.abetterworld.tv, and we have a newsletter that goes out every week to many tens of thousands of people across the United States and beyond. And to get access to that, it is free, it is open, it is for you. Just go to that same website, www.abetterworld.tv. Today, we will be wrestling with some of the larger questions any human being can ask him or herself, and we'll be doing so along with the author of a book that I have just utterly fallen in love with, which I believe you would as well, called The Holy Universe, A New Story of Creation for the Heart, Soul, and Spirit, David Christopher. David will be joining us in uh, just a few moments, just a few words first about him. Uh, He has penned a form of poetic prose that, as I put it in the newsletter, is written from the depths. David left behind corporate and airline careers to pursue his passion for exploring the answers to humanity's eternal questions of our place in the universe, and to help bring forth a new story for our turbulent times. For the past 15 years, he has immersed himself in the works of scientists and thinkers such as Brian Swim, Thomas Berry, Elizabeth Satouris, James Lovelock, big historians such as David Christian, and many, many others. Interestingly, The dialogues inside and composing the Holy Universe are an outgrowth of this study, as well as his his work specifically with the Pachamama Alliance and its work called Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream Symposium. He wrote the book in part for people like him who call themselves spiritual but not religious, who are trying to make sense of the craziness the madness going on in this world, and who seek a meaningful path through the global crises we currently face. 
So it's really with great honor and pleasure that I invite David Christopher on with me today on A Better World. It's clear to all who listen that these are the kinds of uh, subjects we look so deeply into, how to have meaning in what appears as a meaningless world, but oh, is not, and how do we find purpose in what appears perhaps as a purposeless world, but it is not. But it requires a certain amount of soul-searching, you could say, and inner depths of looking, both inwardly and outwardly, to come to another perspective. Uh, you could say a higher realization of the interconnectedness of all things. And this is very much, you could say, the essence of this book, The Holy Universe, and David's rendering uh, which is just captivating at once as um, humorous at moments and by all means enlivening. So, David, welcome to A Better World. Thank you so much, Mitchell. I appreciate it. Thank you uh, for having me on. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I have been doing as uh, thorough a reading of your book as possible in preparation for today's show, and I could say also maybe in preparation for the rest of my life, because <laughs> it really is uh, uh, in some ways uh, an enriching and navigational tool, David, that uh, no, I really, really have been appreciating, um, because it's so uh, distinct in its Style. I'd love to hear what you have to say first about how you embarked on this project beyond what I was saying in the introduction and uh, where it brought you. Well, what um, the reason why I started it is that I, I myself was looking for answers and um, began to get them, as you mentioned, about 15 years ago when I was um, yes. introduced to the works of you know, Barry and Thomas Thomas Berry and sure. um, Brian Swim, and also Daniel Quinn. Ishmael was a, was also a very important book for me too. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the new science says a lot. This new cosmology that these folks that you mentioned are bringing forth really speaks to a much more mysteriously creative and intelligent universe. And even someone who is atheistic has to admit that it certainly acts as if it's intelligent. It's amazing. The, yes. the complexity and whatnot um, that yes. it just seems to spontaneously bring forth. And mm -hmm. I found myself wanting more of a story. I loved the science, and I loved reading about this mysteriousness that even physicists are beginning to acknowledge that, you know, it's, things are not the way Newton thought they, not thought they were way back when. As and a mechanical I, universe. Yes, yeah. yes, as you know, a mechanical universe and a meaningly universe, or as the sage puts it, the big dumb rock story of, of the mm -hmm. universe. Yeah. And what? But I really found myself missing the poetry of what I grew up with. I'm, I, I grew up with the King James Bible, and even though mm -hmm. I had left behind that literal interpretation a long time ago, I really missed the sound and the cadence of the scripture and the lyricism of the liturgy, and I just. There was something about that that was missing for me. So mm -hmm. um, I, after lamenting this state of affairs with uh, another author who was who was part of all this, Dwayne Elgin, who wrote Voluntary Simplicity. Oh, yes. 
We've he, had Dwayne um, on. I love Dwayne's work. Yes, yes. He, at one point, you know, I was lamenting this state of affairs and saying, well, why don't you guys write a new story? You keep saying we need this new story. And he looked at me and said, well, why don't you write it? You know, you, you've studied this long <laughs> enough. Why don't, you, why don't you do that? So uh-huh. he actually was the godfather of this project. It was really his encouragement. Oh, that was that's the catalyst. really nice to hear. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so we had Dwayne I mean, on about a year ago, and his work—I I can now see that part of this puzzle. It makes perfect sense. <clears throat> what was yes, his work on storytelling? Great on transformation his stories. Yeah, great yep. transformation stories is what. Um, oh, yeah. Or great—I'm sorry, great transition stories. Um, great that's part of what uh, what he was yeah. very, very, um, very much involved in, and Hot still on. is. So. Yes, exactly. But, yeah, I mean, exactly. in short, I really was looking for something that filled a void between this meaningless, the, the, meaning, the story of a meaningless universe that the old scientific story gave us, and then this old, literal, almost medieval interpretation of the scriptures that wasn't there. So that's what this dialogue between the seeker and a sage um, does for me, is that it, 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 it tells a new story that takes that yes. science and takes the work of, of, of these folks and recasts it into a new story about the origins of the, of the universe in a more metaphorical and lyrical way. And uh, yeah. I really wanted to be true to the science, but I also wanted to tell a story that was really reminiscent of the stories we've told ourselves throughout the ages. Well, exactly. It captures, in fact, you know, let's set a context for the audience so they have it. This book, as David was just saying, is really cast as a conversation uh, between someone known as the sage and someone known as the seeker. And Mm -hmm. they meet, interestingly, at some party. It's utterly immaterial in a real way. And Mm -hmm. the main thing is they take a walk. (laughs) They take Mm -hmm. a stroll through the wood. And uh, they drink ice water and they eat sandwiches while they go. And so the setting itself is very simple. But the depth that gets brought, brought forward through the sage's deep knowing, understanding, and lyrical way of narrating is spellbinding. And uh, does that set a stage for what the story really is? Yes, yes. And and actually, there there's you know that's the first dialogue after they meet after the party. There's a second meeting, and actually the the sage is I'm sorry the seeker gets back in touch with the sage at the encouragement of his wife. He's going through right. a tough time in his life already. And in that's that right. first meeting, that's when the sage tells the the modern creation story, through you know the beginning of the all beginnings, the beginning of the universe, to the creation of the galaxies, stars, planets, life, and to the emergency, to the emergence, I should say, I'm sorry, emergence of humanity, yeah. all the way to the crises that we now face today on Earth. Yeah. And then the dialogues turn to the second part of the book is what what meaning. Can we? What application and what meaning does this give us? Does this give us in a practical day-to-day level? What can this evolutionary mm-hmm. story teach us about how we might find our way through these crises, and in fact, how these crises might be the best thing that ever happened to humanity? Well, that is That's one it. of the points that emerges. First of all, you know, it just should be known that uh, 
unlike reading some kind of scientific textbook, this is like reading a body of poetry, prosaic poetry, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And while one gets to really savor um, the fine use of language and image, uh, you are the reader is getting a real lesson in the, uh, you know, the didactic history of the universe on one hand Mm -hmm. and then brought forth to life on Earth and the evolution of life on Earth and then the evolution of Homo sapiens on Earth and the development of what you refer to as the ancient mind, you could say Mm -hmm. that of the indigenous cultures and that of the modern mind, which, of course, we're altogether very familiar with. Mm -hmm. So just as a way of casting it, you make the really beautiful point um, that we know it, but the way you put it is really uh, wonderful. Uh, That speaks of catastrophe begetting creativity. And Mm -hmm. you use some fine examples that I'd actually love for you to kind of uh, spell out a bit for us, David, which is, for instance, the effect of oxygen first and then what happens with a a meeting of life with oxygen Mm -hmm. well that's yeah that's actually one of my favorite pieces that and Uh this was also a piece that came to me when um you know after you set your pencil down and you look around the room and you think where in the world did this come from but um, let, let me read just about this, about a 30-second piece that talks Please about the, the oxygen catastrophe. And just to set it up, life yes. at this point had already invented photosynthesis in response to an earlier catastrophe, an earlier famine. It had run out of food on, on early Earth. And at this point, after life had figured out, well, let's take sunlight and strip apart air and use the hydrogen and and um, to to use that as a fuel as a food. Um, that's when every that's there was an evolutionary turn at that point where life then began to flourish again. And then I'll I'll just go ahead and dive into the story. Yeah, yet once again, <clears throat> yet once again, catastrophe. For as the beings who seized starlight to strip apart water and air became stronger and multiplied. They gave off oxygen, a vile and poisonous fire that slowly spread and turned the color of the sky, an ominous, deadly blue. For this oxygen, this poison, destroyed the wastes of one that might have been food for others, rendered inedible the flesh of earth, even penetrated the beings and killed them. Oxygen wrought havoc across earth. It destroyed swarms of the tiny beings, their food, and their colonies of life. And that is the more poetic way of telling the science of what happened during the the oxygen catastrophe. And uh, actually, James Lovelock ranks it up there that life became very, very precariously close to becoming extinct on Earth at that point because Mm. oxygen was just an absolute poison. But life figured out a way to take this poison, this this pollution. I wish you would read that passage, actually, you know, so people can then get that okay. it was a transformational moment in the experience of that which was devastating and destroying. Yes, would you, okay. Would you do that? 
Sure, sure. Well, okay, let me set this this up too. So sure. what happened was is that as this as auction was beginning to really wreak havoc with the web of life at that point, there was a being that figured out how to use it, how to take oxygen and actually use it instead of as a poison. It used it to actually, um, as a source of energy, as a source of metabolizing food within it, and it became 20 times more stronger than than others, than than its, than its ancestors. And it became more and more powerful. Um, this being, having learned the secrets of the fire of oxygen, gained 20 times the power of, of its ancestors. And filled with its newfound power, this new being of fire thrived and multiplied, creating new forms of itself as it spread across Earth. And then it talks about, this, this story talks about how it started to, be, started to prey on other species, too, and how it became very, very hyper-competitive. And then I'll come back to the story here. Yet sure. there were new lessons to learn. For it came to pass that two of these tiny beings together brought forth something most startling and unpredictable. The first, a violent being of fire, armed with the power of oxygen and hungering for food, attacked the second being, penetrating its flesh, intent on destroying it. Yet this second being did not die. It remained alive, harboring and feeding the first within itself. The first, the would-be predator, set aside its violent ways and in turn helped the second being, protecting it from the fire of oxygen, even using oxygen to feed them both. Thus the two beings joined together as one, using oxygen, the waste of another, as sustenance for itself. And this new being's waste, carbon dioxide, became in turn sustenance for others. Catastrophe begat creativity. Competition begat cooperation. The curse of oxygen became a blessing. All the, teeny, all the tiny beings once again prospered and multiplied, filling the oceans of Earth. And the blue of the sky transformed from the color of death into the color of life. Whoa. <laughs> you know, that is so beautiful, David. It is so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And the sage uses that as a metaphor for what humanity is facing now, what humanity has created for itself now on Earth. Yes. Life, in, life creates the conditions for more life, but life also at times creates catastrophes that can then be used or somehow, and, and you really could, we really couldn't um, foresee this happening. But it really can use these catastrophes to create new emergent um, properties, emergent beings. I mean, essentially, yeah. this, this the last passage described the creation of the nucleated or what's called the eukaryotic cell, which was the basis for multicellular beings, which was the basis for plants and animals. Without this catastrophe, it's possible that that cell may have never evolved and without that cell, we would not be here. So in essence, that yeah. enormous catastrophe that we faced, actually that life faced at that point billions of years ago, actually caused the ability to have even more complex life emerge and evolve. So it's possible that's what we're going through now, that these catastrophes and crises that we're facing will force an evolutionary leap in humanity's consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, and enforce essentially a new story out of the old stories, 
the old sure. you know, the, the old story of the big dumb rock story versus which is actually attached to the more modern mind story of just life is meaningless, just consume, we need to grow our economy. Well, All those stories that we have yeah. of our current economy, of what, what's most important. The materialist view. The materialistic say. viewpoint, exactly, yes. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it should also be said that uh, it is we who give the word catastrophe to certain natural occurrences, not the infinite. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. we Who knows? We may, be, we may be right on schedule. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, exactly, exactly. In fact, I remember a friend of mine many years ago when I was bemoaning uh, global warming and the like said to me in what I felt was a uh, really traitorous, kind of comment <laughs> maybe this is what the creator had exactly in mind to help us to evolve to our next level that might be beyond oxygen or something of that sort and i looked at him like you know he had grown horns uh-huh. yeah <laughs> Don't you think that's just, you know, setting down the plow and just letting anything happen the way it happens to go and humans would have no responsibility at all for for caretaking their planet? But mm. I had to think about it, David. I had to think about it many times since he made that comment that it's more there's more complexity there than yeah. I was originally willing to bring forward. Well, it's a possibility. I mean, it, it, there is that actually comes up in the dialogues also, where you know, the, the seeker talks about how I've heard the idea that humanity is supposed to cause this mass extinction in these crises, and that yeah. so that you know that, that causes extinction so Earth can move on. And the seeker, the sage says that, and the seeker responds, "Do you believe that?" And the sage says, "Not for a moment." Because there's no guarantees the web of life will regenerate. And what if the universe actually needs us to help create this new level of evolution, to consciously create? Mm. So mm. on the one hand, you know, the, the one story, both the story of a fallen or a flawed species, that humanity has fallen, that's the old yeah. uh, religious story. Image, where humanity right. is flawed. That's the newer scientific story. That's or that not so not necessarily scientific story, but that is a story that's out there. That there's somehow a flaw within humanity. Why else would we foul our nest so badly? The story of both of those stories, in a sense, let humanity off the hook. And this new yeah. story of a mysteriously creative universe actually forces us to face up to what we've done and take responsibility for it. And then let's, what can we do? How do we approach the um, the issues that we face? What's the new story that we need to tell ourselves? Mm-hmm. And that and that mm-hmm. is the story of planetary mind that the sage tells. Yes, okay. So there's ancient mind. Now you're... you're um letting me know what I have yet to get to. So on one hand, <laughs> yes. there's ancient mind, there's modern mind, and then there's planetary mind, which is yes. a co-creative, co- co-responsible state of mind. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Is that, 
Is that yes, it? Yes, yeah, that that's 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 pretty close to to what the the story says. As as you said earlier, ancient mind is what emerged as Homo sapiens emerged out of Africa and became conscious of our. Uh, we became conscious of ourselves, and sure. then we began to tell stories. And those stories, even though we spread across the planet, and had ten thousand languages, ten thousand different cultures, some more violent, some more peaceful. Yeah. Still, the common story was one of connection, that we are part of this creation. We are part of the environment. We are part of Earth. We are part of the cosmos. So right. even though a, a particular culture might be more or, less, more or less violent than another one, there was still that story of connection. And you had to have that, because if you weren't connected to your environment, if you didn't know where to find food, how to avoid becoming food for another and where to mm -hmm. find water, how to build shelter. If you weren't connected intimately to your environment, you died off. So you, so ancient mind necessarily had to be very connected to the world. Conversely, when modern mind about 10,000 years ago, I should say when humanity about 10,000 years ago began to settle in cities, in, in towns and villages and cities, when we started getting very serious about systemic agriculture, that's when the story of ancient mind, I'm sorry, modern mind, becomes, or emerges. Begins, right. And that's emerges. a story exactly. of separation. It's the story of humanity having a superior position, a superior place in the web of life. And it's fascinating. As I was working, as I was working on this book, I began to realize and have the question in my mind of all the world's religions tend to be religions of modern mind. And they all have this sense of somehow humanity got separated and you need to do this or you need to believe to that back. in order to yeah. get become back to it. There was that yeah. split and then the cure being offered by That's a religion. That's a really fine point. That's a yes. very fine point, you know. And it's it interesting. Really so within the yeah. earlier parts of a religion, if, if, you, if you study... Um, some of what happened in earlier Christianity, there were a lot of there were a lot of sects that weren't necessarily part of a larger hierarchical organization. They were very much uh, more, you know, spirituality is a responsibility of the individual, such much as more the egalitarian, for instance. Yes, yeah. yeah. So at any rate, but then as it. modern mind became more and more powerful in whatever civilization you 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 were talking about. Religions tend to be get, tend to get co-opted and used not for liberation, but really more for control and mm -hmm. controlling the masses and appeasing appeasing the masses. That yeah. you know, it, it, enjoy well, your life. You know, don't worry about your life being kind of horrible right now. There is an afterlife waiting for you. Sure. And it was an interesting in question point. that came up. I'm sorry. No, I was uh -oh. just saying a case in point. Yeah. Being uh, Paul Excellence, the Catholic Church, out of Rome, the Vatican. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable as a political and economic institution for mm -hmm. most of the centuries in which it's been uh, uh, prominent, you know. Yes. It yes. certainly and hasn't it's... been a religion of liberation, you know. The only liberation that happened was liberation theology, which had to liberate itself from Catholicism. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> no, at least from the church. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Let's let so everybody know that uh, we are speaking with uh, David 
David Christopher, the author of The Holy Universe, A New Story of Creation for the Heart, Soul, and Spirit. And as we've been saying, this book is born out of the deep impulse that David and many of us have felt to rewrite the story of humanity, not just from the past, but really into the future. Uh, a story that goes beyond what he refers very wisely as the ancient mind of the indigenous story, which is utterly beautiful and carries us so far into our depths, really, in our lives, and the modern story, which takes us on another tack and yields its fruit, but also so many of its flaws and mechanicalities and uh, sort of a, a, uh, an emptiness when it comes to heart and soul. And David has written a book here, The Holy Universe, which kind of takes these two with some sense of confluence to give us another uh, story to ride, which uh, I, I think is beautiful. It really is. You're listening to a Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World. Our website is www.abetterworld.tv, and uh, come join us and uh, tune in. So, David, please pick up where you were. Well, let's see. Um, at this point... Um might it might be useful just to talk a bit about the three the, the three stories well we talked a the bit three about minds, oh actually we already did yeah. we we did talk a bit we talked a bit about the ancient mind the story of connection and then the modern well, I'd like mind. to bring this up the essences of especially mm -hmm. since you mentioned religion and uh as i was reading what with some background in Buddhist psychology, the essence of relation was really the story, as you described it, is really, from a Buddhist point of view, the story of, of interdependence. Maybe you can speak a little bit about that. Well, there, uh, uh, the, the first chapter of the book talks about the creation of the cosmos and the creation of the galaxies and the stars and then planets in, that, that were created after, out of second-generation stars, and then on some of those planets, life emerging on that. And, and obviously the one we're, uh, we're talking most about is life on Earth. Sure. And then the second chapter talks about the emergence of the web of life. And there essentially are about six, there are six um, uh, essences of the universe that the sage uses as ways of organizing the story around the emergence of the web of life. And those are beauty and uh, creation and destruction, flexibility, which talks about um, how life can become flexible when it faces catastrophe, the flow of energy and material through, through the web of life, and, and then emerging... Distinct from rigidity, of course, and inflexibility. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes, yes. And then emergence is another emergence and unpredictability is also another essence that um that comes through the web of life mm -hmm. and then and also before I talk about relation, there's also another one called beauty and as yeah. I was studying the science um of 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 early life and how the web of life formed and uh, went on through to present day, I noticed that a lot of the science was missing a discussion on beauty. 
So I actually mm. put, wrote that into the story too. And James Lovelock actually, it was fun to have his his uh, views, um, reading about his views in one of his books. I can't I can't remember if it was the Ages of Gaia or Gaia, um, uh-huh. a new look at life on Earth. But he talks about in one of the append in, in one of the uh, final chapters of that book about how science needs to to acknowledge the reality of beauty and that it needs to be part of the story. And then the last uh, essence being the that of relation, that everything is related to one to everything else. Mm-hmm. I was at a celebration this past Halloween where the uh, people who put together the celebration wove these amazing little, uh, they, they strung these very tight uh, twine strings and in, in pieces of twine across the ceiling at about seven feet high, and they made all kinds of geometric shapes because it was it, it, there were twelve posts in the roundhouse, and they brought twine to each one. And I just noticed it was the first time that I actually would play with that, and I noticed no matter where I touched that web and moved it, it reverberated in, in the entire room. In the entire ceiling, oh, and that's yeah. one important note, one important thing, one important essence, is that essence of relation, and, and or demonstrating that essence of relation in that if you touch one part of the web, it affects everything else within the web. So you exactly. can't clear cut a forest without having it some some sort of consequence down the road, or actually down the stream, really, because that yeah. then you know to take that particular example. If you clear cut a forest, it poisons it, it causes problems with the stream and then in the Pacific Northwest nearby where I live, the salmon can't come back up the stream. It's more difficult for them. The stream the temperature of the stream is higher. It it, it you, you can't the... please go ahead. This is the story of the ecosystem and understanding the web of life, as you beautifully put it, which is the interconnectedness of all things. And a change in one thing is a change in everything. And there are certain fundamental principles that have not translated into our daily life, which really does uh, exist and even feed on this notion of separation, which you Mm -hmm. go into, which has to be made distinct, by the way, from the notion of distinction, discernment, and differentiation. These are not the same, as you point out, and I think most people in this audience recognize that. But the idea of a separation, so the seeker in your story uh, feels because he's lost his job and he's not fulfilling what his wife would want him to do and his children, etc., he feels lonely, he feels alienated, he feels like he's all alone in the universe because mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. missing that foundational, fundamental connectedness that used to be part of the human story in a sense, literally by definition, but it evaporated, it literally vaporized mm-hmm. in exchange for a materialistic view, world view, that did not know how to maintain that sense of the web of life that you so beautifully mm-hmm. articulate here. Well, and the other, you know, one, one thing, as you were talking, one thing that occurred to me was, you know, as we talk about that sense of connection, 
this is not to say that everything that modern mind has done has been horrible. I mean, if I if I break oh, my leg, no. I know where I'm going. <laughs> I'm going to go oh, to yeah. a wonderfully modern hospital that knows how to take care of me. Oh, um, yeah. And take care of oh, that, injury. Would be, that would be foolish. It, it's yes, not that yes. it's horrible. It's that it's missing fundamental elements that yes. were there before. And even what was there before has missing elements. And mm-hmm. I think that's part of the brilliance of what you're putting forward here that it's not that anyone is perfect that we are perhaps flawed as a species and you can think of it that way or you could think of it as we continue to Mm co-evolve with whatever notion of creator one wants to uh imagine yes yes and the jews for instance david the jews say that um God needs us every bit as much as we need God mm-hmm. to carry this <laughs> this experiment forward. You know? Yes, it's an interesting and and if you yeah, and when you take that, you know, it, even if you reject the you know the theistic or deistic, I actually tend to be like yeah. E.O. E. Wilson had a wonderful description. He called himself a provisional deist which is um, someone who thinks that perhaps there's something going on that started the whole process, but well, he won't go as far as there is someone out there who is directing and moving the chess pieces on the board. But sure. yes, I mean, we're very much a part of this whole creative process that, you know, this is not to elevate us to some um, superior position, but it is to acknowledge the power that we have and the capabilities that we have as far as co-creating. I mean, one of in, in the story of Planetary Mind, um, the seeker talks about that, how we are this creative force of the infinite, manifest in the p- form of a human being. We are an integral part of the ways of the universe and are subject to the lessons of the web of life. And mm-hmm. that, you know, we, 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 go, we, we can awaken to a deeper communion with Earth And we do so, and let me just read this one stanza, we do so with gratitude and respect. We do so with gratitude, respect, and humility, for we know that while we have learned much, there is still much to learn as planetary mind awakens within the holy universe. So it's not to put us on a pedestal, but it's not to also put us down that we're, we're wrong or bad or flawed. It really yeah. is a it's a third story that yeah. you know we we have responsibility we can't know everything and we're learning as we go so it's a sense of yes we do have knowledge we do have experience we do have power and we have a lot of power and we need to be mm-hmm. very very you know have a sense of humbleness as we decide okay That's decide right. our courses of action That's right Exactly exactly I think one of the points I'd like to kind of, in a sense, re-emphasize, uh, and this is for the good of many, including many folks who fancy themselves uh, as spiritualists of one sort or another, seeking spirituality as a noun, which, you know, is a funny thing in itself. <laughs> English to, is funny, uh, isn't it? <laughs> yo, it's hilarious, yeah. So <laughs> I'm not going to get caught on that. That part of it, but rather to say that there tends to be in our collective New Age consciousness, David, this idea of which I am also subject, by the way, um, Mm -hmm. this notion of the good 
and the creative and a lack of appreciation for what we could refer to as the destructive. And in Mm -hmm. fact, religions have caught the essence of this physics, actually, uh, many times in the past, sort of Vishnu and Shiva and Mm -hmm. Brahman, you know, Mm -hmm. for the Hindu trilogy. And we have it here in the West as well. And you make the point, and we did reference it earlier, about that relationship, that exquisite relationship between what we call creation and what we call destruction, which is really, Mm -hmm. you could say, one is an assembling and one is a dissembling, um, and both are equal value in the eyes of the infinite, and one depends on the other. Mm-hmm. Could yes. you elaborate on that a little bit? Because that's a, you understand why I prefaced it the way I did. It's kind of hard because we don't like destruction. I know I don't like destruction well, because yes. I've been conditioned not to appreciate it for what it actually is. Yeah, it brings up the whole conundrum of of violence and the yeah. conundrum of destruction. There was one point um, a number of years ago that I was out uh, not far from where I live in the woods, and um, I heard this squeaking noise, and I looked up in a tree, and I saw a hawk, and I thought, oh, she's feeding her, her brood. And actually, she wasn't feeding her brood. She was feasting on a rodent that she had just caught and was eating it alive. And this happens every single day that someone is going through an enormous amount, some being, some little creature is going through an enormous amount of pain that life feeds upon life. Um, That's right. And it gets to that essence of the infinite creates, therefore it shall destroy. The infinite destroys, therefore it shall create. And one of the things in the story, it talks about how catastrophe is the spoon that stirs the cauldron of creativity. Because the opposite of birth is, the opposite of death is not life, but birth. For death and birth are the primordial facets of the web of life's deepest expressions of the cosmic creative drive of the infinite. Which is, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's really kind of can make you think and take it's it's a hard one to reconcile that we need to have that destruction and what is the there is a role for violence in the web of life and how do we how do we live with that how do we be with that yes um is an important how question. do we as sensitive let's call ourselves sensitive intelligent homo sapiens mm-hmm. let's just say that Uh, let's tell that story for a moment and yet we are bearing witness in the forest of exactly what you saw and Mm -hmm. there's something really repugnant about it about life needing to feed on life to survive and you know I gotta say, and I've thought about this many times. If I were the creator, I would <laughs> set up a ecosystem that did not require that function, you know. But you know, when you think about the transformation that occurred with seeing or experiencing sunlight as food or as mm-hmm. oxygen 
as food and then setting up the O2-CO2 distinction and interdependence. So I wonder with this kind of thinking, David, could we as co-creators actually set up uh, an ecosystem that becomes the next step for humanity or, I mean, for Earth's evolution that did not require eating life to sustain life? Oh, Lordy, I don't know. I I, I hesitate to We're ever... just having fun. Yeah, You're... I don't know if we could really think. But part of, part of I always get cautious when, or, or kind of get hesitant when we say, well, we could set the system up like this. When we're just learning, we're now learning that in like, what is it, like a cubic centimeter of soil, there are more beings in that cubic centimeter of soil and healthy soil than there are people on the planet. We, are, we oh. have such a vast ignorance of how the yeah. web of life works. So yeah. I don't know how you'd go about figuring out you know, how, how do we get it so nobody's eating no one else. But, you know, that that is also, you know, that that's also, maybe that's part of the story of separation, that this is a bad thing that some, that, yeah. you know, and I certainly, if I were that mouse, I certainly wouldn't be happy at that point. That would be an absolutely painful thing. But there's yeah. also part of me that thinks, well, is there a super, you know, a super consciousness? Is there, is there a greater consciousness that is at work here that is, that is up to something, and I'm yes. not sure what, but it just fascinates me to look to listen to these questions and, and ponder them and think, what in the world is the universe up to? It's just mind-bogglingly amazing. Um, no so question. that's no that, that's yeah. I don't have any answers for how you would set it up that way. I don't know if well, you listen, could set I wanna, it up any different way. But I want to frame it in this way that, and I, I sought to, which is. There was, you could also say in retrospect, how in the world did some of the members of our clan stare down oxygen that was ravaging every single living being on the planet, Mm -hmm. but stare it down, as you so beautifully put it in your book, in such a way that it essentially, you could say, tamed oxygen Mm -hmm. and made it a brand instead of a foe made it food instead of poison Mm -hmm. so you know from now you could say my god how in the world did we set that up well maybe we didn't set it up but maybe somehow we did something from what was appearing as catastrophe Mm -hmm. had this leap so i'm just saying Maybe along that same kind of analog, we could, you know, that would be a step. Or maybe you are right. Maybe it is part of the larger ecosystemic balance that we have to eat each other. After all, if in a cubic foot of dirt, we have more beings than the entire, on the entire face of the planet in humans. Whoa, you know, maybe we need to eat each other. Well, yes, I mean, that that is actually, in fact, Dwayne at one point, I remember him talking about, um, I forget what teacher he, he attributed this to, but the idea of life feeds upon life. And when you can really deeply experience that, not understand it from an intellectual way, but really understand yeah. it in your bones, experience it. 
that is one of the keys to enlightenment is yeah. understanding that. So it really has, it seems to, and I can't speak from experience, I'm as much of a, a novice as anyone, but it seems that transcending the individual egos that are in pain, or my, you know, transcending the pain that I go through, may be part of the whole process. And seeing that larger soul yeah. that is running, that is not running, yeah. but that larger soul that is behind all beings. Sort of like being the, um, fed through the process. Yes, that is feeding itself through the process. Way. Yeah, if that's we look, feeding itself, if we, exactly. If we look at, if we I take, think it was, look, go ahead. It was uh, Eckhart Tolle, I believe, who through whom I first heard that notion of of uh, death not being the opposite of life, but being the opposite of birth. And of course, mm-hmm. it resonated immediately to me, and I quote it actually a lot because I think it's a really important distinction for people yes. to wrap their heads and hearts around. Uh, and it, it then, therefore, conveys this notion that there's something going on way bigger than <laughs> us and our rather puny little idea of births and deaths, you know. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. A, a larger orchestrator. Yes. Well, you know. yeah, it's um, you know, there's there's a you know another piece of the dialogue that might be interesting that that takes you know goes from that theme. Um, it um, there's a point in the in the book towards the end of the book where the seeker and the sage are at the the at the ocean. They're they're practicing a couple of exercises, and the sage talks about the idea of the temple of the infinite, of coming out of our houses of worship and seeing the temple everywhere seeing the sacred everywhere and the seeker is pondering you know you know are we going to wake up in time are we really going to wake up in time and there's a little excerpt that i'd like to read that that uh, where the sage gives oh please so you know whether or not so this the seekers ask whether or not um, we're going to wake up and the sage replies i think we will as I, sit here, as I sit here in this temple and look out at the decorated sky, listening to the chorus of waves and shorebirds, I remember. I remember that the infinite has been driving itself to greater order and beautiful complexity, to greater consciousness for billions of years. I remember I am bathing in this cosmic stream that carries me on this delightful journey. I remember that we are much larger than we think, we are not meaningless specks on an insignificant planet in a vast, heartless universe. We are instead dazzling flashes of brilliance on a tiny but delightful sacred sparkle of stardust called Earth. The infinite could not be one millimeter smaller and still be able to call us into being. The universe worked patiently for billions of years to create us. There is a place for you in the universe, a place for you in the web of life. You never were separate from the infinite. She fell silent once again, and they sat basking in the starlight. Ooh, God. Utterly so that particular piece, really, for me, it, it, it brings me back into that larger context of, of you know, the, the universe being, can't be, it couldn't be one millimeter smaller than it is yes. to still be able to contain us. It wouldn't work. Right. We're 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 not small beings. If we if the universe were any bigger, the the container would be too small. Yes. So we're yes, right yes, at the perfect yes. size. And uh, wow, and the other thing that, that comes, is yeah, so beautiful. 
That is and so the other beautiful. thing that comes I, up in that, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that that uh, echoes another passage that uh, I just recently came across where it almost sounds like Uncle Sam wants you as you are <laughs> speaking to the uh, to the seeker in a way uh, letting him know that all of life is occurring around him but including him and mm-hmm. that the request you could say of the uh, mysterious creative infinite includes him and it, yeah. at the end of a few uh, stanzas it says and the infinite wants you in italics you know it's, yeah. you know what I'm, which I'm talking about yes yeah the, the, in a mysterious and profound way the infinite wants earth it wants that's life. right the infinite wants it. humanity it's worked for so long to create you for billions of years and the dna in your hand is an unbroken chain that has been unbroken for hundreds of millions of years if not billions of years there wasn't a single ancestor who didn't make it to bring you into being so in a you know alongside just this and 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 again you know it's it's not it's not that you're no more you're no more precious than any other being in the web of life. You certainly are no no less precious either. No less precious. You are part of this whole symphony. Concomitantly precious. Yes, yes. And the other thing yeah. that comes up in this particular piece too is this is a this is um, I don't identify the sage as a woman until um, a few pages into the book. And mm-hmm. it's very interesting that the um, responses that I got from people, my first readers, probably about 15 uh-huh. or 20 readers, all of them stopped at that one point and, and made some note when they ran across that first personal pronoun 10 or 15 pages into the book where it says she. And they all said something along the effect of, oh, I didn't realize that the sage was a woman. And in fact, I had one of my editors at one point said, "You know, you really should identify her. You know, we we should get a better picture of her much earlier, because you know you're playing uh-huh. around with us." And uh-huh. there was a question that came up of, "Well, why? Why is yeah. it that if the sage were a man, I do not have to identify her as him as such, but if right. the sage is a woman, that I'm supposed sure. to identify it?" So this starts getting, you know, and, and this is, I think, part of the whole process of the emergence of planet, uh, the emergence of planetary mind, where we're looking yes. at questions of privilege in our social structures, the yes. privilege that someone like me, who is white, male, and heterosexual, has unearned privilege, and that mm-hmm. I think is a very, very important. There's actually a section in the book that talks about privilege and how that's one of the stories of modern mind that really it's not that big of a deal, but. For those of us who enjoy privilege, it's very hard for us to see what it's like for those of us who do not. And that is an important part of the whole issue of social justice. That is an important yes, facet of the conversation that planetary mind is bringing forth right now. Exactly. Um, it's part of our, our background listening, as uh, Werner Erhard would call it. And it's also a... Um, it allows this collective assumption that the one most worth listening to is another one of us, uh, mm-hmm. a white 
male of privilege is going to get the most and best listening when you clearly inverted that, at least on the level of gender. And so that already begins to forge a new relationship. You know, some of us refer to it as, you know, the the eternal feminine or the feminine archetype, mm-hmm. which we have some sense is gaining foreground now at this point in our evolution because it has to. Because it has to. The weakening, the weak aspects of the modern mind is that it has gone dry because it's missing heart and soul, which, mm-hmm. you know, we uh, rely on the feminine, the, the wetness of the feminine to uh, reacquaint us with these depths of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, those of us who are immersed in modern mind who who need to be reconnected. Um it's not exactly. that humanity has exactly. lost its connection. Their their you know, ancient mind is not gone. And it is, you know, no. who knows. And and I and I do hesitate to uh, make a lot of assertions about ancient mind because I'm not a product of ancient mind. I'm very sure. thoroughly an individual who was raised in modern mind. But except um, except there are those same psychogenetic imprints that you were talking yes. about in your book that you have been the inheritor, but it's not conscious. In fact, this circles back to something else that was a significant influence on you in the writing and conceiving of this book, which is your relationship to an organization, the Pachamama Alliance, which mm-hmm. is wholly predicated on its relationship to ancient mind with the Achuar in Ecuador who Mm -hmm. spoke and a group of people with modern mind had the opening to hear. Could you speak Mm -hmm. a little bit about that? This also has to do with the use of planetary mind for um, preserving uh, the magnificence of our ecosystems on Earth. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. I mean, very, very briefly, the Pachamama Alliance was born, I believe it's about 15, 20 years ago now. Where I think it was 1995 I, or so. That yeah. that's, that sounds about right. Um, at any rate, it was re, it was born at the request of the Achuar. Um, they began to have dreams and visions of a threat from the outside world, from the modern world. And they approached um, Bill and Lynn Twist and John Perkins who were visiting at the time in the rainforest, and they approached them and said, we want your help, we need your help. So Mm -hmm. in response to that, after some measure of reluctance, in response to that, they created the Pachamama Alliance, which was Mm -hmm. created to help teach them, I'm sorry, created to help the Achuar learn about the ways of modern mind, such as Mm -hmm. how do you make a map of your territory, to prove that you've lived here. Where where do you hunt? Where do you fish? Where do you yes. live? Um, right. How do you deal with, with what? Yes, yeah. What what is this law that you? What do you mean that that they have the right to have a piece of paper saying that you can mine underneath our land? What what are all the what are all the accoutrements of modern mind that we are up against? We need your yeah. help in in doing that. That's one of the reasons why I like Pachamama Alliance so much. Is that it wasn't formed with this sense of, oh, let's go help these poor people. 
it was mm-hmm. caused it was brought into being at the request of these of the folks yes. that it now serves yes. and continues and that it continues to be a sense of what is it that you want how can we help you continue yes. to protect the lands that you want to protect what is it that you you want now and the life uh, you want to protect mhm yes yes yeah 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 absolutely and you were engaged rather actively with the Pachamama Alliance some time I, ago. Yes, I I learned of them and became a volunteer very quickly. Um, I learned how to be one of the facilitators of an, of an event called the Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream Program, yeah. and um, which takes us through that whole journey of where are we on planet Earth right now? We're in, we're in big trouble. How did we get to this this situation that we're in? What are the worldviews that are that are um, that are behind what we're doing, and what is possible for the future? So I became part of that uh, the the whole body of facilitators. I, I forget how many thousands out there that are out there out there teaching about teaching the symposium, yeah. and um, yeah. and I also did a short. Uh, I actually contracted with them for about a year and a half or so. I was actually on staff for a particular project. So mm-hmm. I've been a volunteer, mm-hmm. a donor, and even in, in ways I uh, worked worked directly for them. And it was out of that symposium that this particular book came into being. Yes, yes, beautiful. Well, it really, I I kind of picked up on that um, without knowing much about mm-hmm. your background in this regard, interestingly. So I well, yes, somehow I was... Well, yes, hear your own experience with the Pachamama Alliance. You'd already, you already knew about them, yeah. so yeah, very familiar. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, interestingly, this Sunday I'll be going to one of the workshops they are offering in New York City, and I've put their material on our website, abetterworld.tv, for uh, people to attend the workshops, which take place actually across the planet, but of course largely in North America. And mm-hmm. I think that they're offering them literally by the week, and they have an on online course too it's it's very much an awakening process for people who just haven't had a clue of the interconnectedness of life the web of life and how you so uh elegantly describe it david in your book of our place in the larger picture you know Mm. and uh really did a a beautiful job i want to thank you so much for your good work Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for um, thank you for the conversation about it too. And I do want to mention too that if people want to read an excerpt, it is I do have an excerpt on the website. Um, And just say the website. www.theholyuniverse.com, and H L and uh, holy being spelled H O L Y. So um, the the theholyuniverse.com. So it has excerpts and other things on there too. Yes. Definitely. And I will also be on the East Coast in um, in March too. I'll be coming to Boston and uh, perhaps into uh, New York too for a tour okay. in the early part of uh, early part of March. Okay, good. Let's be in touch about that. We'll uh, okay. if you do get down to New York, we'll uh, have you on the TV show as well. Oh, that would be fun. Maybe we can set something up for you here. Okay. All right. That sounds very All right. good. Great. 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 Wonderful to talk. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, continue on with your good work. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sure. Absolutely. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was really uh, thrilling to, one, uh, read the book and uh, appreciate this form of of science through poetry in uh, a lyrical way, I would say. Um, and it's so beautiful, and it actually interestingly reminded me, as I've been getting to know David over the last uh, short period of time in preparation for the interview, I was going back in my mind to say, there's some resonance here that I'm trying to put my finger on, and actually during this interview or dialogue, I got clear about what it was, and that was way back in the late 70s. I used to muse on many things, and one of the things I began to muse on was that my own knowledge of math and science was not great. I was much more of an illiterati. I had a a degree in ancient literature and comparative mythology from Bard College. And yes, I wanted to go into the field of psychology, but I was poised in the direction of Carl Gustav Jung. So having a base in uh, mythology and religion would be of great usefulness. So I didn't study much math, I didn't study much science, and I didn't really have much of a feel for them anyway. But after I finished college and I was in the world of New York City, the jungle of New York City, I began to think about things and I began thinking about why I hadn't had a deeper sense of fun and engagement with these two vitally important subjects. And I realized why. There was no poetry in it. There was no sense of humanity in the way math and science are taught. There was no storyline to speak of, except the thinnest little historical narrative that showed up, not in math at all, except for perhaps the discovery of zero, but in science very, very thin. So... I conceived of a way of rewriting math and science textbooks. And that was to have a conversation, essentially a Socratic type of uh, conversation with four people. One was the teacher, and the other three, or perhaps four, I don't remember now, represented, yeah, it was four different types of human beings, one an intellectual type, one an intuitive type, one an emotional type, and one a kinesthetic or sensation type. And they would together explore the subjects and the principles of science, the principles of math, the history of each, watching it develop through creative minds and imagination. And in that way, humanize the subjects and the study of the subjects. And, oh, I was thrilled with it, and I wrote it up, and I had a friend, uh, actually a friend of my sister's, who worked in uh, a major publishing house. And I brought these. You know, this is before we had computers. So I had to do it all on a typewriter. Um, I typed it all up, 
and uh, gave it to her for consideration by her publishing house about how to recontextualize the text, if you will, to reformat the texts so they those subjects that are so important, math and science, uh, would be made human and exciting as such with all of the drama and the flair of being human, not just a bunch of numbers engaging just our left hemisphere in a process. But it would be whole-brained. It would be forebrained. You know, you get the drifts. Anyway, uh, I mean to tell that to David so I can realize, you know, that's what his writing helped to bring forth in me was that recollection of uh, that perspective that I was nursing way back then when I was but a lad. Anyway, I want to just thank you all for having uh, joined us today. Uh, This book, The Holy Universe, A New Story of Creation for the Heart, Soul, and Spirit by David Christopher, our guest today, is really phenomenal. Do go to his website, theholyuniverse.com, and uh, read a section of it. But even better, uh, you can go to our website. We have the Amazon link right there or on our newsletter, and you can uh, click it and get it uh, in a real easy uh, movement of a digit. So uh, anyway, I want to thank you again. And also, just to reiterate one point here about the Pachamama Alliance, I was recently at the uh, Alliance luncheon at the Boathouse in Central Park in New York City all of four or five weeks ago, and Lynn and and Bill Twist were there speaking about uh, their good work in Ecuador to turn things around uh, in many ways the oil companies are there and exerting their pressure on uh, drilling in what is considered to be the most biodiverse area of the planet and uh, it's just sad because there's plenty of oil in Ecuador and there are other places where they can drill you know it's not to be saying not to drill, although ultimately we would like to say that. That's not really the point, but the question is where? And do they need to disrupt this ancient mind-based indigenous family, this clan, this tribe that has been sustaining its life and its ancestors and its generations for countless number of years. And this is the kind of intelligence that we need to start exercising daily in our lives. And uh, honestly, I admit I have not completed the reading of the Holy Universe, but David pointed us in the direction of the development of the planetary mind. And I am sure that's one of the subjects discussed, how we can coalesce, collaborate, as a humanity, as a species, and help to work with the life forms of other species intelligently, intuitively, non-verbally, and feel life itself and do what we can to nurture it. 
So on that note, I want to thank you all again for listening. Uh, Remember, we have a weekly television show as well, every Tuesday night at 10.30, New York time, although we are seeking to change that time and day, and we'll let you know when. And if you do not yet get the newsletter, oh, please do, at www.abetterworld.tv. On the right-hand column is the chance to sign up for that free newsletter, which makes announcements of various important things going on currently in our daily lives to become part of a better world family, a better world community, to make a difference in the world. And uh, that's all, folks. Thanks again, Mitchell J. Raven. So appreciate you listening, and I look forward to seeing you all next